Russian narratives in the world, are they still powerful? You're listening to the podcast Explaining Ukraine. Russian propaganda is one of the foundations of this war. Are Russian narratives still widespread in the world today? What are the most toxic ones? My name is Volodymyr Yermolenko. I'm Ukrainian philosopher and journalist, chief editor of ukraineworld.org. In this episode, I speak to Nina Kuryata, a Ukrainian journalist and media expert and former chief editor of the Ukrainian service of the BBC. Ukraine World is brought to you by Internews Ukraine, one of the largest Ukrainian media NGOs. You can support us at patreon.com slash ukraineworld. Nina Kuryata, welcome to this podcast. Thank you, Vladimir. Hi. So let us talk about uh, Russian propaganda, Russian narratives. Uh, we had the impression that Russian, Russia has actually lost the information war because in the West, at least in the Western democracies, because uh, major its major narratives didn't work. Not so many people believed uh, in uh, the way how Russia described its invasion, like it's, it's fighting the Nazis in Ukraine. But recently we see more and more narratives re-emerging and, um, and people really doubting that we can describe this war as Ukrainians describe it, as really the, the fight for human rights, for democracy, against evil. So... What do you what do you think? You follow these Russian narratives. Uh, are we in a kind of a counterattack of the Russian propaganda right now? Well, I think we can't actually say we are on the counterattack because the counterattack against propaganda would be the counter propaganda, right? And uh, there are probably some outlets created especially for that, but. What, what is even more worrying for me is that even media, even Western uh, media agencies uh, who have the reputation of uh, being unbiased and professional and non-propagandists, they consciously or non-consciously still follow Kremlin narratives about this war from the very beginning of this war. Because if you probably remember, when the war has just started, how was it called in world-famous news organizations? Ukraine conflict, Ukraine crisis. When, you know, you shouldn't be a big friend of Ukraine or you shouldn't be um, specially trained to understand that if people in the military uniform of another country on the heavy weaponry cross the border of the neighboring country, this is the invasion whatever country does it to any other country. This is the military inv invasion, which is the war. And uh, basically, for, for, for almost for all Western media to recognize that this is not crisis or conflict, but this is the war, took a lot. And for example, now, when I, when I look at uh, Reuters' website, for example, I still see that 30% news um, have the phrase Ukraine crisis, another 30% have Ukraine conflict, and another 30% have 
the war in Ukraine. While all this is wrong, and it relates not just to Reuters, because I have an analysis uh, here near me um, done about the, a few world news agencies, including Reuters, AFP, NF, NFP, and AP, sorry. And not all of them use Russian war in Ukraine, which is really the name of this what's going on, you know. Uh, not all of them say Russian invasion of Ukraine, but this is the truth, and you shouldn't be uh, counter-propagandist, you shouldn't be biased just to, to, to call the things with their own names. Uh, so the war is the war. And another thing is that when Western media have accepted that it is the war, they started to say Putin's war, which is also like an euphemism, because it's not it's not Putin who bombed Mariupol drama theater. It's not Putin who launched the missiles onto residential buildings and uh, power plants in Ukraine. It's not personally Putin who ordered to blow up Kahovka hydro power plant, etc., etc. These war crimes have the names of a lot of people behind them and. We can't say, oh, it's only Putin. This is exactly what Russian propaganda from the side of so-called Russian opposition says. Oh, this is the war of Putin. Uh, don't mix up Putin with the whole Russia. I've heard it here in London where I'm working now uh, from, a, from an English speaker who said, let's not mix up uh, Vladimir Putin, who is absolutely evil with a great nation, because Russians are a great nation and they shouldn't suffer because of that. This is also a line of Russian propaganda, not Kremlin's propaganda, but so-called good Russians propaganda, I would say, because their only, go their only goal, which they follow, I think, is to get rid of this feeling of guilt. Just to say, we are not guilty, this is not our war. Uh, to avoid the collective responsibility. And this is another thing to be articulated. So Western media should use proper name for, for the thing which is going on. This is Russian invasion of Ukraine. This is Russia's war in Ukraine, not crisis, not conflict. Because if we say Ukraine conflict, Ukraine crisis, it doesn't show who is guilty in that conflict and crisis, who started that. It's like something internal, which is simply not true. What's your impression? I also uh, also try to struggle against this Ukraine crisis, Ukraine conflict. You actually surprised me that Ukraine crisis is still used. I I thought it was really the thing of the past of 2014 or 2015, but you say it is still widely used. But uh, w what is the reason for, for example, saying? the war in Ukraine or Ukraine war? Because some journalists would say, okay, we're just saving space. You know how media works. We say um, more, we try to say as much as we can with as little words as we can, especially in the headlines. Is this the, the reason? Or there is some very deeper psychoanalytical maybe reason it's just a fear to mention the aggressor, to mention such a big country uh, as Russia, uh, like you're, you're afraid of mentioning a beast or a, a demon. Um, 
I think whatever whatever we say here, Vladimir, would be our own speculations, right? We don't know. Uh, the same as if we remember a lot of other wars, uh, we still, we, we said the war in Chechnya, right? We still say that. We said the war in Vietnam. Uh, so basically, we also like follow those stamps, yeah? Um, but I don't remember... If when, for example, Hitler invaded France, did anybody say the France crisis or French conflict? I'm not sure. I think it was Hitler's invasion of uh, France and then all other countries, right? Was it Polish war since the 1st September of 1939? I don't think so. It was Hitler's campaign, which started in Poland. So, um, I don't know what's the reason... But the consequence of that is that they simply do not mention the aggressor. And also, if you... Okay, I follow your line now. If, uh, if they save the space in the headlines, then it should be uh, more substantial in the text. Uh, not using Ukraine conflict here, yeah? using Russia's invasion in, into Ukraine. You have enough space in the news beat. Or in background, saying that Russia's invasion of, uh, of Ukraine started on the 24th of February of 2022, etc., etc. And uh, media which uh, respect themselves and which work properly in terms of giving full context and background, uh, they do that. But it all depends on the editorial policy. And when I see Ukraine crisis... I have a lot of questions to the editorial policy. Let's say Reuters, yes, I do have questions. I'm not saying they are like specially biased or especially, I don't know, as you say, afraid to name the beast. But the effect of that, whatever the reason is, let's discuss the effect. The effect is that all people remember that this is the Ukrainian problem. Whoever did that, we don't care. And then, by the way, for example, here in London, I came to a supermarket and I saw a poster which said um, due to the problem or due to the crisis in Ukraine, there might be shortages of sunflower oil. So our advice is to find a replacement for that. And I just arrived as a Ukrainian refugee here a year ago and I felt like, what? I mean... I couldn't stay in my city, I fled my country, and now I have to feel guilty that you will not have sunflower oil because of my country? Seriously, is my country guilty for that? So, the, the again, whatever is on their mind, the effect is that everybody says, this is because of you, Ukrainians, I pay more money for gas, I pay more money for electricity, my... Uh, strawberry jam became more expensive. I heard that from people who heard that in France, for example. It's all about Ukraine, you know, for them. And it all starts with this Ukraine war or Ukraine crisis or Ukraine conflict. How widespread is that? Because I, I am living in Ukraine. I have the impression that there is a huge, huge amount of solidarity, especially if we take... The first month of this big uh, of this full-scale invasion, maybe it went down, of course, after the, a certain time, and we see that the interest uh, 
to Ukraine, to Ukrainian struggle has gone down significantly, especially after the anniversary of the uh, big invasion. But still, I have the feeling that in, in many countries, at least in, in the EU, in America, in Canada, um, we see this solidarity still present. Um, well, as I say, even if the Western agencies like AP, AFP and Reuters still use a mix of definitions, it affects the news reporting because these are media businesses which basically sell the information to the media. Yeah, It's uh, not just B2C, it's B2B business. And uh, those who buy that information uh, for wider spread, they spread it as is. And if, if there is Ukraine crisis, then they wouldn't uh, probably develop it into the context of background. They will just copy and paste it. Uh, so it is, it is widespread even in Western media. But if we look at so-called global south, the, the, the situation is even worse uh, because... I have to say that Ukraine didn't work much with the so-called global south. Yeah, we didn't work much with Latin America. We didn't work much with Africa, which we struggle to understand each other now without great success, I would say. Um, We didn't do much to understand each other with India. We lost agenda there as well. So um, if even in the Western media, uh, not everything is using the correct wording and by correct wording i mean not we not what we ukrainians would be like would like to be used right I, i'm just saying about calling the, the 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 things and processes with their names as i said so what can we say about the global south as uh, probably um, let's discuss the recent case uh, when russian missile hit the restaurant in kramatorsk uh, where uh, there were a few journalists and uh, other people from South America, and when they published that their impressions and their whereabouts on Facebook, uh, immediately some people came and said that uh, uh, Ukrainians are guilty in that. So it it does have implications, and moreover, if um, if you let me. Uh, move slightly from the conflict slash crisis slash war, there is another thing which really um, follows Kremlin propaganda. Because even in Western agencies, uh, I'm quoting here the research um, by the Center of uh, Strategic Communications. They've They've made a content analysis of these three Western agencies and they found that, for example, there is there is such a glossary which is simply first not true, second really pro-Kremlin because they use such wording as, for example, separatist territories, disputed territories. This is about uh, occupied territories of Lugansk and Donetsk um, oblasts since uh, 2014, yeah, they say they are disputed. Disputed between whom? Sorry. The whole world society didn't recognize those so-called self-proclaimed republics because everybody understands that they are Russian proxies. And uh, respected, again, Western agencies which are spreading the information for money to their subscribers' media say something like 
area disputed or separatist before Russian invasion. What does that mean? That, you know, if you are reading this news for the first time, you never knew what's what's Ukraine all about, you would, dis- would decide that there were really people who wanted to uh, separate from Ukraine and then Russia came and helped them. What does it mean? Separatists before Russian invasion. I, I, I just uh, simply don't get it. And this is not about, again, being friendly or non-friendly to Ukraine. This is just about being professional because this is simply not true. Or, for example, when it is discussed uh, when, um, about the occupied territories, like freshly occupied, so to say, they say Russia held her son. What does it mean, held? It's occupied. Or Moscow backed, it's about Luhansk. But what does it mean, again, for the person who is not in context, that maybe Luhansk... Uh, Asked Moscow to support it. I don't know. What does it mean, Moscow backed? Uh, Or, for example, I think this is a really terrible example, pro-Moscow Kherson region, which means that these media, these news agencies, simply legitimize Russian illegal referendums. What does it mean, pro-Moscow? We we, we saw how um, gladly how happily did people in Kherson meet Ukrainian army? It is not pro Moscow at all, and this this mistake might cost the the whole coverage. You know, so um, when we when we are reading the coverage of uh, these regions, which were occupied since 2014 or occupied since 2022. Um, I would say it might even lead to a diplomatic scandal, for example. And Oleg Nikolenko, the spokesperson of our Ministry of Foreign Affairs, um, even uh, tweeted about that. And he said that AFP became a victim of Russian propaganda. It calls Russia's invading army Ukraine separatists, presenting Russia's war against Ukraine as an internal conflict. Kremlin is cheering, he says. So um, this is really... This is really a serious issue which should should be addressed on on all levels, I would say, because it's again it's about professionalism and nothing more. That's indeed the for this formula of pro Moscow Kherson region, it's absolutely horrible thing. And I think that really what is important is to say that look, in this world there is evil and there is the country that this evil is invaded. And you cannot say, for example, that collaborators with the Nazi regime during the Second World War were some pro-German separatists, right? You should really say that this is evil and these are people who collaborated with this evil, and that's it. Let me ask about you about this recent echo side of the Kachovka Dam. And we have seen also in the, the first hours after this crime, there were many media who were saying that Russia and Ukraine mutually accu- accuse each other of the explosion and we mm, cannot say anything about it and Ukrainians could have done it and probably Ukrainians did it. Some some notorious people even say that Ukrainians did it. What my uh, reproach would be to this media is that 
Of course, we understand that you cannot check the information in one, two hours. You need time. You need time to talk to experts. You need, if you're a reputable media, right? But uh, you cannot also say, just describe that Ukraine and Russia mutually accuse because you just put them into parallel. You just equalize them. You say that the one one wording, the statements of Russians are the same, have the same value as the statements of Ukrainians. You should have provided the background that this dam was occupied by the Russians. Russians, Russians were controlling it and uh, they had all the capacity to explode it, much bigger capacity than the Ukrainians. Would you agree that this was also problematic for many uh, international media? Yes, uh, yes, absolutely. This is again about const context and background. Because yes, we couldn't know who exactly did that. And uh, media with uh, strong editorial standards would probably wait for some satellite pictures or something, I don't know. But definitely what you can say that the dam was occupied months ago, year ago. Then a few months ago, the president said that it is mined, right? And he even invited the international supervisors to help with that situation. It is also an important context. So if Ukraine if Ukraine wanted to blow up that dam, it could do that without invitation of like without the invitation of international uh, mission to supervise this dam, right? Uh, so yes, we we did lack in the international coverage. We did lack uh, the con context and background, and I I agree with Timothy Snyder, who was probably the best, uh, who who did the best advisory of how it should should have been covered, even without firm um, evidences. Who did that? Uh, I remember a conversation with my own editor because I was writing that that day in the morning. And uh, I said that Russia has, obviously it was Russia. And he said, is it, is it proven? And I said, well, we have, and, yeah. And I have to add here that a lot of Ukrainian experts, and I agree with them, said that the authorities could also have done better. The authorities should have published an official statement saying what they wanted to say. And it was done like in a few hours after the catastrophe, which also maybe sent a signal abroad that if Ukraine is not saying anything immediately, probably there is a question. I don't know. I'm not justifying the Western media. I'm just showing uh, the set of mind. Yeah. And I told my editor that, well, by that time when I was writing that, there was Ukrainian official position that it was Russia. And I said, listen, the SBU says it was Russia. The president says it was Russia. Some, somebody else from top official says it was Russia. And he still said, is it confirmed? And I said, whom would you like to confirm that? Really, who is the first-hand source to confirm that? I do understand that Ukrainian authorities are like the, the, the interested side, yeah, to say that it was Russia. But who can independently confirm that? That's the question. And then we saw, so basically, uh, what 
how he edited my text was that Ukraine blames Russia. Because it was true. At the moment, it was true. Ukraine blamed Russia, right? And then we saw this um, video from uh, Russian soldiers from this 205th Brigade, and then, and then, and then, and then. But yes, this position that two sides blame each other, which, by the way, lasted from 2014 when Russia invaded Ukraine uh, on the eastern border, when Ukraine said there were Russian militaries and Putin said, Nastam uh, niet, yeah, there is no Russian army there. I think this way of coverage derives from there. And it basically, it led to the situation in which we are finding ourselves now. And um, it was really weird just saying that Ukraine and Russia blame each other. Okay, we can then cover the whole war in that way, right? We can say Ukraine and Russia blame each other in the start of conflict on the 24th of February. Why not? Russia blames Ukraine that NATO would be on Russian borders. Why don't cover in that way? Yeah, I'm joking, by the way. But, uh, I mean, this is very irresponsible just to say that Ukraine and Russia blame each other and that's it without adding the context. And I'm um, really satisfied with how the Western, media, uh, the Western media went further with that because then they really, when they've got evidences, uh, they published everything. But yes, the first, the initial coverage was really um, far from ideal. What are other narratives that you still see uh, penetrating the international media discourse, in particular Western media discourse, maybe not clearly Russian narratives, but some you know some elements of this. Because uh, if you name this war Ukraine conflict, doesn't mean that probably that you use a Russian narrative, but you really use something that is you know diminishes the Russian responsibility, diminishes Russian guilt, and in that way it plays on 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 Russian. Uh, Russian side. So what are other subtle narratives that you find disturbing? Um, as I said, very disturbing is um, using the uh, of the uh, of such words as separatist and especially separatist regions, which really doesn't make sense in Ukraine because Ukraine doesn't have any region which would like to separate by the, I don't know, ethnic reason or language reason, really. For example, Associated Press, uh, four Ukrainian regions schedule votes this week to join Russia. What does it mean, schedule votes? Do these regions schedule votes uh, like voluntarily? Do they go from there inside? Did they initiate the proper process of local referendum by Ukrainian constitution? No, not at all. They are occupied. And uh, how can we... I, I just don't understand. How can we in 2023 simply write something like the region starts the referendum to join another country? I can't imagine that we would say, for example, mm, I don't know, mm, Ottawa starts the referendum to join the US. I really don't get it. And it's, it's, it's again, it's, it's huge non-professionalism and 
irresponsibility to say that because in this headline everything is wrong simply wrong not because i'm ukrainian uh but because these reg- regions are occupied and the, these are not them who schedule those votes but russia and these are not votes but illegal votes they are fake referendums and this is not to join russia but to be annexed by russia and previously occupied by Russia and performed under Russian gun. That's it. And this is really frightening because, as I say, any other media who buy uh, to the media agencies, to information agencies, for the information, they would just take that news, copy-paste, maybe modify something, but they would, wouldn't definitely check every word. As we say in this headline, simply every word is a lie. It's not true. And this is basically Russian propaganda. The same as uh, separatist regions, pro-Moscow regions, the same goes to the referendum in Crimea in uh, 2014. And even the BBC, one of the BBC editors, I mean, the English-speaking editors, uh, used in his uh, material uh, phrase about Crimean referendum and uh, there was something like the, the results should be respected. So when when I see referendum related either to Crimea or to Donetsk or Luhansk or uh, Kherson or part of Zaporizhia or whatever, um, I always look, is there any fake referendum, illegal referendum imposed by Russia referendum, so-called at least referendum? And it is it is not not always the case. So it is like, you know, uh, small parts of this Russian world, small agents of Russian propaganda on the level of single words. Referendum here, pro-Moscow region there, uh, local authorities about Kirill Stremousov in Kherson, you know, when it's, it's not local authorities, they are local collaborators of occupational troops and this is the fact whatever it relates to is it russian occupation of ukraine or would it be i don't know any other occupation done by another country to any other country and um, when they simply say like russia covered russia controlled russia occupied this is the word the world sorry and uh, this is really frightening because uh, then it goes wider and wider and people just don't think, uh, I mean, journalists don't have time to think, is it all correct? Because the informational agency is a respected thing and uh, their readers even like care even less. And then these readers really think that, yes, there were some pro-Moscow, pro-Russian people in Ukraine and Russia just came and released them, and uh, why not? And also, uh, one of one of the most triggering one is Ukrainian Nazi, which is like, you know, I was... Uh, I met a lot of people here, intelligent people who follow the news, and uh, when I explain how it was and what's this invasion about, and this is the existential war, and it's not about the peace of our territory, when they say, but why don't you just give up this uh, area and then 
just stop the war. And I say that, no, they wouldn't stop because they do not want our nation to exist. But this is not something which you can cover in the news because the news are about something which has happened, right? Uh, So, and finally, when I think I've convinced them in everything, there is always a question, but Nina, but there are guys with Nazi tattoos in Azov battalion, you know? And this is weird because even if we had the full battalion of, I don't know, of people with weird tattoo on them, would it be really a reason to bomb Mariupol? Would it be a reason to invade Ukraine? I mean, there are far right in all European countries. They are infiltrating their parliaments now. The whole governments are far right in some countries. And nobody bombs them for that. And when in the discussion, these people who read the foreign news um, finally come back to me and say, but Nina, there are people with uh, Nazi tattoo. It means that Russian propaganda is still effective because there is always like an last argument. um, And it looks like this, this tattoo might be a reason for Russia to invade which shows how far did this Kremlin propaganda reach. This is all very true, and I thank you, Nina, for raising this issue. Maybe my last question for today. Uh, Ukrainians have all very often blamed for being too emotional, and I have the impression right now that there is this discourse in um, in some of the international media or academia that combines uh, sympathy towards Ukrainians, but at the same time mistrust to them. Like, yeah, we understand that you have been invaded and we understand, we share your your suffering, we have compassion to your th- suffering, but in terms of analysis, thinking, use of words, we will not trust you because you're too emotional and too traumatized. And we would rather develop our own vocabulary, which would, of course, take into account the Russian uh, version of that or kind of a neutral version of that. Do you have this impression? Yeah, I do have this impression that um, I think a lot of people in the West, I mean, the media professionals in the West might think that Ukrainians can't be objective and unbiased when covering the war. And here is a very big question of what is objective and unbiased. Because unbiased doesn't mean, mm, as we say, five minutes for Hitler, five minutes for Jews, right? Uh, To be unbiased means to cover the story in all its details, from all its sides. That's it. And of course, no one in the world, either Ukrainian or American or German or I don't know whom, would cover the war in their own country without any emotions. That's simply impossible. And of course, those Western uh, war correspondents who are in Ukraine now, they've been at dozens of wars across the whole world, you know, and for them, it is just another spot on the map. Or probably this is the first place where they came to start their career and to... I don't know, to, to, to become famous, to get their journalism uh, glory, etc., etc., to win a prize, 
and to be proud that like when I was 21, I went to Ukraine and I was at the front line and I covered something near Bakhmut, etc., etc. And of course, for Ukrainians, this war is not something ordinary which they have seen a dozen times before. I know a lot of brilliant analysts and brilliant um, journalists who haven't been frontline reporters, but now they became frontline reporters. So, of course, any human being on this planet would never be um, indifferent to the war in their own country. And this is normal. But also, I can say that... uh, I simply applause to all my colleagues in Ukraine who are in the front line because they are covering this war absolutely professionally. Because, as I said, uh, to be unbiased doesn't mean to be indifferent, doesn't be, mean to be emotionless, uh, doesn't mean to like not to care about what's going on. It just means to do your job professionally and to to show as much as possible. And we see that Ukrainian journalists do that brilliantly and by the way they have to object uh, the um, they have to fight with the authorities sometimes because they fight for the access to the places where the news are uh, remember after the blowing up Kachovka dam they couldn't access or they accessed and then they were punished for that uh, so i would say that ukrainian journalists are great professionals and to hear that from Western colleagues, um, I would say it is a bit humiliating, really. And I see that a lot of our talented journalists work as uh, fixers with uh, Western media. Um, probably it is it is good to work with Western media, at least at this capacity. Because really, without a good fixer, you never get the story. And I know that behind any uh, super story, any super TV package or radio package, there is a Ukrainian producer behind who is not just about to find a driver, to drive a car and to to, to, to find a hotel, uh, but also about finding people and finding the characters and talking to them their own language, etc., uh, etc. Et and I know a friend of mine who's been Uh, working with one of the top American media uh, who was just telling me how she found a family of uh, um, people needed for the package. And she was crying when she was telling it uh, me, just telling their story. Of course, we can't stay emotionless, but Ukrainian journalists are professional. And also, I think the more we appeal to the logics, the more we appeal to general rules of journalism, the less emotional will they uh, consider us to be. Because what I do if I see this Ukraine conflict, Ukraine crisis, separatist regions, blah, 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 I write the editorial complaint. And it's very important because in uh, normal media which respect themselves, there is a, an institution of media of, of uh, editorial complaints. And any person who's, re- who's read something wrong can complain about that. And the media has to respond. And I remember uh, there were a few uh, cases when people were writing, a lot of people were writing about this same thing to top media organization, and it changed the phrasing, the wording. 
So what I can say, if you see anything uh, which is simply not right, which is simply not true, not because just you don't like it. We can't say, don't use invader, use evil, right? We can't say uh, something emotional. We can't demand that. But we simply can say, name Russia as aggressor, name Russia as invader, write about war crimes, referendums were fake, all these so-called separatists in, in Ukraine were imposed by Russia after Igor Strelkov Girkin, the war criminal, brought his column to Donbass in 2014. As simple as that. And on every website of worldwide media or uh, news agency, there is an email, write to us or contact us, uh, or even write a complaint and let's use that button. And then I think they will understand that there is an issue. And it's very good, Volodymyr, that we are talking about that today. And I hope that those who listen to this podcast, especially from our Western audience, would hear this. This is not about our emotions. Uh, yes, we do have emotions. And you Western people would also have emotions if, for God's sake, the war came to your country. Uh, but what we want is just a simply professional coverage. Thank you. Thank you very much for this. Nina Kuryata, thank you for joining this conversation. Thank you, Vladimir. This was a podcast explaining Ukraine by ukraineworld.org, a website in English about Ukraine. My name is Volodymyr Yermolenko. I'm Ukrainian philosopher and journalist, chief editor of Ukraine World. In this episode, I spoke to Nina Kuryata, a Ukrainian journalist and media expert and former chief editor of the Ukrainian service of the BBC. Ukraine World is brought to you by Internews Ukraine, one of the largest Ukrainian media NGOs. You can support us at patreon.com slash Ukraine World. Stay with us and stand with Ukraine.